welcome to This Week in Sparkling Water. I'm your host, Iwakim Aksum. Alright, little episode here. See what's going on. Yeah, I mean, America's kind of falling apart, and it's very alienating to me as a foreigner because um, it's one of these situations where I am not really reacting to stuff the same way as people around me. Or, honestly, it's um, the thing that really stayed with me after I read it was this piece by the Washington Post. Uh, I have it here in my browser. It's called, I urge you to Google it and read it because it's it's a hoot. Um, the piece is called How Western Media Would Cover Minneapolis If It Happened in Another Country. It's a very simple idea. The idea is just that like, Western media has this thing of how we talk about dysfunction in government in otherized countries. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to be in favor of the little guy in in a faraway scenario. Like, I remember watching just videos of, like, the Hong Kong protests. And you have these people that are protesters that go violent and... You know, a part of me just thinks that's so... It's beautiful because they, um, they're really risking their own safety. Because they go violent in the face of a extremely powerful police force. And it's really a sort of suicide mission. And I remember watching some of those videos and crying because it's just like, God damn it, man. We still have that in us, eh? That political ideals... And these these really lofty ideals of freedom and stuff that we wanna that we want to go into battle for that stuff, and you have this tiny sense of hope that maybe this can inspire something widespread amongst people so that good change, real change, can happen. But I mean, that isn't gonna happen, and that didn't happen in Hong Kong, and I don't think that's happening in Hong Kong, and I don't think I ever really believed that it was gonna happen, but I still cried. And then you have these protests in America, and it's like, I just feel so... I guess it's alienating because it's two opposite things at the same time. On the one hand, you have this, the image of a crush of human rights activists sort of weaving in and out of a fog bank of tear gas, you know what I'm saying? You have that image... But it's right here, and I and I live here, and it's I had just sort of just started four years in America, and I just started kind of feeling like not that I belong here, but that I just know what's going on, and that I know who I am here, and that this place. I mean, I guess I had started mistaking this place for Sweden, you know, for quiet old, quiet old Svedola, and um, I guess this isn't Sweden, you know. But I sure was thinking it was Sweden there for a second. It's so quiet here and people are kind of healthy and there's not a lot of fat people and all the grocery stores are really neat and orderly and expensive and people go to CrossFit and people are kind of boring and there's a lot of things that can confuse you and make you think this is Sweden, you know what I'm saying? Life in Seattle. And then it's like, suddenly it's far away, and yeah, I mean, it's that mix of the faraway imagery happening 
right here because I tell you, it's, I mean, as much as I, it's that disjointed feeling because it's like, I am living in a close-up. Apparently they were, um, the protests were planned to happen in the university village where I work and therefore we were staying open in the face of it, in the face of the curfew even. <laughs> it's like, it's just so crazy because it's like, it's so bad. Everything about it is bad because the only people that wanted to come into work were like white guys who weren't afraid of anything. So it's like, okay, yeah, great. Let's just exasperate inequality even more, you know? Everyone loses their paycheck except white guys who aren't afraid of anything. So me, I'm a white guy and I'm not afraid of anything. So I went into work with the other white guys. And um, yeah, I mean, and then look, kudos to the Babar management because... Eventually, we closed shop yesterday, and the people who were on the schedule still got paid, even though they didn't go into work. So, you know, that's that's good. Because I don't think they would have gone into work on account of fear. But, um, I mean, it's just crazy what I'm saying. It's just that it's very... I get called off, and I see these pictures from show who... Because we have, like tens of thousands of I mean we have a very extensive liquor program we got a lot of inventory in there and it, and when the riots are about to happen I see show packing up like a thousand expensive liquor bottles in the back of his flatbed truck driving off just you know just to make sure they don't get their grabby mitts on anything it's like it's crazy and it's very up close you know Monday I get called off and I'm not going into work so instead I'm like cleaning the house just like nervously depressed cleaning the house and and I go to Bartels pharmacy across the street and I'm there at like 1:30 p.m. and when I walk in there at 1:30 to see get some Windex cuz I want to clean the apartment real good get the balcony glass inside and outside everyone in the store everyone who works at Bartels is like panicking all the employees are running back and forth on on the, they're all on the phone with their own management team, like corporate or something, talking to corporate on speakerphone, on their phones. And I can hear the corporate being like, you got to board everything up. You got to board it up. And these are like pharmacists in white lab coats. And they're like, you know, what? I'm a pharmacist. What are you talking about? How am I going to, I don't have, bo- have two by fours. I don't have nails. I don't have a hammer. I'm a pharmacist. And then they were like, going to close up shop at 2 p.m. Because, you know, the riots is coming. You know, the unrest is coming. (sighs) And then someone else was like, no, we're closing up right now. And they refused to ring me up. It's like, bro, just trying to get some Windex before the fucking riots happen. Can I get some Windex? Just ring me up for some Windex real quick. What was I saying? Part of being from a small country is that nothing feels unmanageably big or unmanageably large or so unwieldy that you feel like even if there was an extreme sense of even if you feel like something ex- if you feel like something is extremely wrong, you think you can still go there. You can still walk over to Stockholm and fix it, you know? And I mean, I am, dude, I am, 
as far separated from the halls of power as anyone in Sweden. I mean, that's not really true because I got one buddy who ended up there, you know, fucking sliding around on a on a banana peel landing in a with a fucking diplomat passport in his pocket, you know. Who I don't know how that happened, but he's in Stockholm, but. I'm as far separated from the halls of power as anyone, but I still feel like I could walk over there. Because I think that's a big part of the feeling. The frustration where you're so many steps separated from the halls of power that that you don't feel like you can fix it. And that's what it is. People feel like they can't fix it. And it's the same feeling that feeds the conspiracy theories. Because if you feel like you have access to politicians where you could call someone who could call someone who could call your governor and check in with him and really level with him and really get some real information from him, then you could never believe in, like, you know, the craziest Pizzagate, you know, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are trying to get adrenochrome from 10,000 children that they keep locked in a sex dungeon. You know, you could never believe that if you feel like you had access to your politicians. But in a big country, man, man, it's a big national project over here. And it is, it is unwieldy. So, I don't know. I, I mean, what I really want is to just read this entire Washington Post article to you. But I obviously can't do that. But it's just written like this. In, in recent years, the international community has sounded the alarm on the deteriorating political and human rights situation in the United States under the regime of Donald Trump. Now, there are all these words there that isn't how you talk about it when it's actually in America. And then it goes on. Now, as the country marks 100,000 deaths from the coronavirus pandemic, the former British colony finds itself in a downward spiral of, of ethnic violence. You know? The country has been rocked by several viral videos depicting extrajudicial judici executions of black ethnic minorities by state security forces. You know, all those terms. It's like we always talk about African countries as the former French colony or something, you know? It's so fucking degrading. And, you know, extrajudicial executions, black ethnic minorities, referring to police as state security forces. That's what they always do to China, man. And sometimes it's fair and sometimes it isn't, but I don't know. But really why I'm talking about this article is because it's exactly the voice that I tried to do for this blog that I had that I called the M. Joe American Center for American Studies because I moved to America in my late 20s when I was a little bit too old to just accept everything at face value. And I was just not, it was just very jarring to me. And I just couldn't accept that like things were, things were very weird to me. And I would write these little blog posts and very few people read them, and they were mostly me. It was mostly in lieu of therapy that I would write these things. And it would be like super practical things about life in America that was just different from what I was used to, like going to the post office and like everything, like the post office works so poorly, and how that explains um, why Americans want small government, you know, just shit like that. And it was sort of written in this, um, I was really 
here's, let me be humble here and say, I was really trying to do that voice and I don't think I ever succeeded. And part of why I'm talking about this article is because I want to give them credit and say that those people at the Washington Post who clearly are real journalists, who spend all day writing, I mean, many of them sit there and write all day about other countries. So they're very used to that voice. And I'm, I can imagine that it's not even that hard for someone who is a foreign correspondent for 10 years to turn that lens around and just talk about events in America with the same terms. Because it really, all those terms are so loaded and it's really just about the terms. And man, that shit's fascinating to me because those terms where you, either you call it police or you call it state security forces, either you call it like, you know, alleged fucking police misconduct or you call it like extrajudicial killing like those terms control the narrative so fucking powerfully and uh, yeah and um what i'm saying is just i'm giving credit to washington post for when i read that man i'm gonna be honest with you immediately went on there and got a paid subscription and I think partly I wrote the blog because the blog I wanted to read didn't exist. And now reading this Washington Post article, man, that's exactly what I wanted to read. Because I never feel I never succeeded in writing the blog I wanted to read. Honestly, I did it. I, I worked on it. I spent a lot of time on it. I never came out very good. I kept working on the voice. It got a little bit better. It got a little bit better. It never got particularly good. And I couldn't control the whininess of it and it got really complainy and it turned into this thing where it was just a fucking swede poor like very ham-fistedly using satire to just shit on america all the time and like who wants to read about a foreigner shitting on your country no one wants to read about that it it came off mean-spirited which is why i gave gave up on it it came up came off mean-spirited and um it wasn't good and I gave up, but man, this uh, Washington Post article, because it's it hits every single thing. And we're so used to using this language that the Washington Post invokes here for this dysfunctional stuff. I mean, no, no, I mean, I'm saying we, but I don't know, maybe you're not used to that. I'm used to that. I'm used to thinking about faraway places as dysfunctional. And I'm used to thinking of Sweden as functional. Not perfect, but, you know, small enough that it's manageable, you know? Small enough that it's manageable. Yeah. That's a phrase from this comic strip, or like it's a paraphrase of this comic strip where there's this comic strip called um, A Lesson is Learned, But the Damage is Irreversible. It's like one of my favorite literary documents, all categories, and one of the one of the things is a guy who is trying to tie his tie and he um, doesn't have a mirror. So he, he asks his girlfriend to open her eyes real big. And so he looks at himself in the reflection of his girlfriend's eyes. And um, he looks at the reflection of the entire room in her eyes. And he's like, ooh, the world is so small in there, comma, almost manageable. I just think that's so beautiful. And that maybe that's Swedish governance, you know. This is nine million people, quite a lot of resources, wasn't bombed out in World War II. Maybe not that hard to figure out, you know. 
historically a very homogenous population. My friend Sam, her husband, this Chinese guy who's who I'm friends with too, Ray, he um they got married in China and or yeah, they moved to America and got married in America and he's on this fiance green card and he's waiting for a green card for a long time. And it was taking longer than it should, and while he's waiting, he's not allowed to work, and while he's waiting, everything is unsure, and it's the Trump presidency and all this stuff. And him and we were in similar situations that we were both waiting for our green cards. And then when he got it, he she told me that he said this thing about it where it's like it was like when you have your opacity turned up from fifty to one hundred percent, you know? Like in Photoshop, when you have a layer where the opacity is set to forty percent, like that's what it feels like to finally get your green card. And I related to that so much. That's exactly how I felt. Because for like a two-year period, I was here on like these vague extensions where someone from the immigration department basically hand-wrote a note in the back of my passport saying, yeah, this guy's waiting for a final decision on his permanent residency permit. And it was literally, it was a handwritten, it had a number, it had a case number. And it was basically like, yeah, if you need to check the validity of this, just call us and give us the case number and we'll tell you that this is real. And uh, it was so vague. <laughs> Traveling with it was so ridiculous. Every single flight I would miss, I would almost miss every single flight because every single time at the gate, basically there would be three checkpoints, like checking in at the gate um, and then arriving every at every instance. They would call the immigration department in America and be like, look, this guy has like a handwritten thing in the back of his passport. Is this real? And then some guy on the other line at 3 a.m. in America would be like, yeah, 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 let him through. And it was just nerve wracking to travel. And... It would also say that I was allowed to work. <laughs> the whole thing was so vague. And then when I got a 10-year green card, it was like my opacity was turned up. And I, I really related to Ray's description of that. And then there's something about America disappearing into dysfunction here and uh, not being able to just implement proper reform where you don't do extrajudicial killings of ethnic minorities. There's something about that inability and the broken conversation around it that just makes me feel like my opacity's turned back down. Makes me feel like I was wrong, that I'm actually just a visitor. I'm actually just passing through. For a long time I felt like I was passing through and then they gave me a 10-year green card and I felt like maybe I was staying and then maybe now I feel like, nah... Maybe not, but I guess, I mean, we'll see. I don't know what's going on. My girlfriend just asked me what my family in Sweden thinks about police brutality in America, and if I've talked to my family in America, family in Sweden about pol police brutality in America, and it's like, honestly, it's like when my mom visited America, we're walking through downtown Seattle, and the way she was talking about it and the way we were talking about it and the way she was looking at it and just seeing this country through her gaze, I realized that she 
saw it exactly like how she saw China when she visited me in China. It's just like this far away, um, what's the word? Perverse, kind of obscene, overgrown, way too big, way too much stuff. All these high rises, really dirty, walking through downtown Seattle like there's homeless people everywhere, really dysfunctional. People don't take care of their people anymore. And like that voice of how she, the narrative in her head describing China and or America is the narrative in the Washington Post article. That's it. That's the same voice. And it's like, it's the voice for the other, you know? And I had forgotten that. Also, one other thing. The original crime of George Floyd was forgery. Is what people called it. So then I, I saw these people being like, oh, you know, you forge a check and you end up with this. Dude, he didn't forge a check. He did something even way smaller. He was trying to pay with a fake 20. And dude, oh my God. Do you know how many times I have tried to pay with fake money? Maybe 50 times. I mean, in China, when in China, there's just a lot more fake money rolling sloshing around and I, it's not really comparable because of that maybe i don't know but in china it's like also when you're a foreigner they think you're an idiot so they think they can get away with giving you a, a, a fake a fake 20 quai bill and hey guess what they can because you don't know you're a stupid foreigner they give you a bill of this foreign money and it and also chinese money looks crazy and like comes in all different kinds of quality and some of those bills are so old and so worn and look like they have been chewed up and devoured by a llama and pooped out and cleaned off about 20 times. And you know, the thing that always fascinated me about trying to decide if real if Chinese money is real or not is that sometimes you get a real bill which is super thin like thin like joss paper or rice paper or like a baking sheet like just you hold it in your hand and this is like su the material is super thin and then other times you get a real bill which is thick with like grease just ossified layers of grease so the weird thing is that really really old chinese paper money can have aged in these very different directions so sometimes it's just super old and thin and su sometimes it's super old and thick and all the the fact that that range exists makes it super difficult where sometimes you get one that's kind of thick and it's like just real paper and it's made by some kid with a crayon and it you know it's very confusing so when you get one that's real extra ratchet extra janky you don't i mean sometimes you don't fucking worry about it and you just take the take the 20 quai bill and then as a foreigner they pawn off a lot of fake bills on you so I remember back in the day when when we were a couple of dudes living in an apartment, a couple of foreigners living in Shanghai, all the way back, like me and Shanghai Dave and the lawyer and stuff, we would always have like a really messy living room coffee table and there would always just be a stack of fake bills on there that people had pawned off on us and we hadn't noticed until it was too late. <laughs> and then, you know, you're always you always walk around with a couple of those in your pocket because whenever there's a situation that's kind of chaotic and you feel like oh yeah this guy's not going to double check this bill right here 
you try to give him a fake 20, you know, middle of the night, you're buying something, he's kind of distracted, give him a fake 20, you know? And it's like, that's what happened, dude. This guy tried to pay with a fake $20 bill and then they just choked him out and murdered him. It's like so fucking painful. What a bad time to be alive. And, um, and like, the, even pre-race war, it's just so surreal how everyone's already so depressed and watching, I'm watching like, um, you know, I was going to say Grubhub as if that's a streaming service. Um, what's the name? GitHub? Uh, what's the name? I don't know. Which I'm thinking Vimeo. What's the name of the streaming service I'm thinking of? Hulu. Hulu, not Grubhub. Um, on Hulu, there are all these ads where it's like celebrities just kind of looking at you. They just kind of lock eyes with you and they just say, yeah, I know you're depressed right now. It's okay. It's okay to be depressed. Everything sucks right now. And it's so surreal to watch that and be really depressed. It's like Lena Dunham is looking at you straight in the face and just being like, yeah, you hate yourself right now and it's okay. And it's like, yeah, I do. I just kind of hate myself right now. And then like 11 other celebrities roll through and it's like, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's like, just so surreal. And that, that shit's pre-race riots, you know? Oh, man. I don't know. I don't even know why I'm recording this episode. Honestly, this episode is kind of a palate cleanser. Because I didn't like the last episode. And I can't have that last episode be up. I can't have it. No, I can't have it be up. I'm not going to take it down. The episode would show. I'm not going to take it down, but I don't want it to be the last episode. I just hate the idea of that being the last episode. Because if you discover my podcast right now and you go there and you just start playing the last episode, you're going to listen to the show episode. I just didn't think it went well. I don't think I didn't think we connected. I didn't think my questions landed. I think he's very depressed right now. I think I'm very depressed. I think we kind of hate each other. And it's funny, man. I think if we had done the interview three months ago, I think it would have been good. I think if we would do it three months into the future, if we would have done it then instead, it would have been better. But it, I don't think it worked. I think none of the banter worked. He didn't understand my questions. He didn't like... I don't know. I mean, my instinct is to blame him and shit on him and be like, yeah, well, I guess Sho isn't an interesting person. I guess Sho is one of those like handsome guys who doesn't talk a whole lot. And like, you know, everyone knows like a person that doesn't talk much and you think they're mysterious and probably hiding something fascinating and then you get to know them and it's like, you know, <laughs> you realize they have no personality and the shitty part of me wants to say that that's show, you know, fuck show. <laughs> but that's not right. Show's a good guy. I mean, I don't know if show's a good guy, but but um, it's not show's fault that the episode, that I didn't like the episode. Show didn't do anything wrong there. And I don't want to blame that on him. I have to take responsibility for that. It's very hard, though, for me emotionally because I get real defensive about it. And it's also like, first of all, he didn't fucking come at me and be like, hey, can I be on your podcast? I, w I asked him, you know? 
And then he comes on my podcast and then I ask him, hey, what do you think is annoying about me? And then he goes in. And honestly, I'm going to tell you right now. He talked about that a lot. He was like, where do I begin? And then he found a place to begin. And then he listed many things he didn't like about me and things that he thought was annoying about me. And then like, I thought some of those things were too abstract. So I asked him again, like, no, more practically what's annoying about me. And then he like kept going and did another 20 minutes of explaining practical things that I, that I do that I'm, that's annoying at work. And, and then I got mad at him. And it's really like, um, it's so fucking irrational <laughs> to get mad at him in that situation. Like, what am I doing? I asked him. I forced him to come on my podcast. I asked him what he thinks is annoying about me. And then I, he talks about it for 20 minutes. And then I keep asking him. And I keep forcing him to reiterate and explain what's annoying. I mean, part of me just wants to. So here's what happened. I asked Joe what's annoying about me. And then he listed off all these things. And I edited it out of the podcast. I only kept like 10 minutes of that in or seven minutes or something. And there was like 25 minutes of it, of him just shitting on me. And me just being like, oh, but can you tell me some more annoying things about me? Um, and I edited it out because no one's going to, like, no one's going to hire me. No restaurant is ever going to hire me if that's out there. Yeah, my instinct right now is to go through the list of things that he said is annoying about me and... <laughs> litigate them all right here, right now, when he's not here to defend himself and explain why he's wrong. But, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do that now. I'm going to do that just with one thing. Because he said one thing that I didn't, it didn't get traction with me right away. But then a couple of days later, I edited the episode. And I, I mean, basically, I just listened to it first. And it made me so mad. And then that just stuck with me. Oh, I'm so thirsty right now. Um... He said, Sho said, I asked him, hey, what do you think is annoying about me? And he goes, oh, where do I start? When Joe Kim is around, there's always pens everywhere. Now, let me, let me explain a couple of things to you about pens in restaurants. In restaurants, you always need pens. And when you work front of house, when you're a server, when you're a bartender, when you're the guy handling payment, you always need pens. And you can never have too many pens. And I had a pen collection that I had been building for years. And let's go all the way back. I started being a server at Blue Star under Elliot Johnson, a fairly experienced, a sort of middle, middle of the road server who is very reliable. He's a good high volume server, actually. Honestly, look, if I was mean, you know why Elliot's a server? Because in America, because he has a British accent, because he's he lived until he was eighteen or something, he lived in the UK, and then he moves to America with with his family, and he gets a restaurant job, and he just lands in this position where Americans fucking love British accents, and he gets tipped, he gets these huge extra, he makes a lot more money than everyone else because of tips, because they tip people with a British accent really well and they like mistake the British accent for great service so he just can't give that up you know it's just too good he just does this really sort of not difficult not difficult job and he's fairly good at it so that's why he's a server anyway he had a lot of good habits honestly and he was a tight 
neat, organized server who did, he, I learned a lot from him in terms of, you got to do flashcards. You started in a restaurant, do flashcards for all the menu items. Think of all the questions that are difficult. Take all the bar items, turn them into flashcards. Um, when, when things get kind of busy, but it, and then it kind of slows down and it's kind of messy, do a to-do list. It's the most organized way. Do a to-do list on paper where you're like, I'm going to clean these eight things. And then you write those things down on a piece of paper. If you don't write them down, you're going to forget one of them. Make paper to-do lists for practical things that you're going to do in the next hour. It's a very different type of to-do list than what I do in my computer and shit. Um, also, what I learned from Elliot is pens. We worked together at a high-volume restaurant where you needed a lot of pens. You had like a 10-table section. It was like, turn them and burn them. It was like, people closing out, people closing out. You got It needs to be fast. And... We also did, honestly, the thing that we needed the most pens was that Elliot and me did the Monday night bar trivia. I've mentioned the bar trivia on the pod before. It's where um, Ivan the Benevolent was the trivia master. Monday night. Uh, a um, Yeah, Ivan doesn't like it when I say the names of the companies that he worked for, so we're calling it a Denver-based uh, um bar trivia company that appeals to geeks um anyway the 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 structure was that everyone wants to close out at the exact same time so you have like 15 tables and everyone wants individual checks that was the structure so you have 15 tables three or four people at every table and each person wants to check at the exact same time because the bar trivia ends and everyone wants to leave at the same time so you need 50 pence so Elliot would get fucking 50 pens. And then he had so many pens that people would be like, oh, he's got so many, I can steal five. And then they would fucking disappear. So what he did is he took the tape that they have at the restaurant and he put tape on all of his pens. I learned that from Elliot. Very good thing that I learned from Elliot. Now, I bought my own pens because I don't mind investing 50 bucks in my server career, you know? I would buy 50 bucks worth of pens. And then Elliot, the the restaurant tape was already on his pens so i went to the fucking store and i got gummy bear pattern tape like very specific tape and i put that tape on all of my pens you know and then i mean many things happened you know like it would be like you find your you would look at someone's pocket and there's a pen sticking out and you're like is my tape on that pen and they would be like no and you're like take that pen out and show me and then it would be shit like I would put my tape over Elliot's tape because my tape was wider. So I would steal his pens and put my tape over when I was mad at him, you know? <laughs> so funny. You know, the pen wars of 2017. Um, but then I quit there and then I went to the sushi place. And at the sushi place, they really understood the details. And at the sushi place, they would just get these big crates of pens, just hundreds of pens. And all the pens would have the name of the restaurant on them. And it was a really nice, quality, high-quality pen. Because it's like the idea was you spend all that money on the food. Maybe you can even walk off with the pen. And the pen can be a sort of marketing thing. Where if you have that pen sliding around in your high house, you know, if you're writing checks with that pen three weeks later, then maybe you re remember that restaurant and have a good, you know, good lasting impression of the restaurant. And maybe that increases your chances of going back, you know. I'm going to be honest, I think that was solid. I think that was a good investment. I think that it, it was good for them to spend all that money on the pens. And then um, 
they would have so many pens that, you know, the pens just went everywhere. Because when you have a whole lot of something, man, that shit gets consumed. So they would run out of pens all the time and have to get a new crate, which is crazy. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure they spent a lot of money on pens. And if I'm being honest, I feel bad saying this, you know, I would have an apron on and I would maybe have two pens at the end of the shift. I would have two of their pens and I wouldn't put them back. And then I, those two pens end up at my house. And that's not really stealing because they had so many. But then like when that happens over and over, I would end up with like many of their pens at my house. And that wasn't so great. And I would bring some pens back, you know, because I felt like this is not so nice. But yeah, then I would feel a little bit underpaid and then I would like keep some more of the pens and then I would really feel really charitable towards the owner and then I would bring some pens back, whatever. The point is that some of those pens ended up in my pen collection. And, you know, just, just pausing here on the pens. Being a server... You're trying to give someone a good experience. Ultimately, most of the time, it's, I mean, it is a job. You're trying to do it because you're, you're, um, you're trying to get tipped out nicely. You're trying to get a nice tip at the end of their experience. But really, you don't need to separate those things. It's possible to just say that, you know, you want to give them a good experience because you want to give them a good experience. And then anything that you do to get a better tip isn't really manipulative because it's really something that you're probably like when you when you're a b testing things like when you test when you're doing things like this a hundred times and then you tweak it a little bit and you do it like that a hundred times and then you compare the results of the two and you figure out that b was better i mean that usually just means that b means that your guests had a better experience when you did option B instead of option A. So A, B testing it, you really, I mean, people can be like you're manipulating people and stuff, but really you're just figuring out what people want. And the thing about the pens is it's that last moment, you know, it's that in that moment with the pen is when they tip you. So if you're giving them some shitty pen that you like stole off of your server buddy 30 second previous and it's like sticky and it's like out of ink and you have to they have to ask you for a second pen and they give them another pen that's like fucking jonathan's lawn service is written on there or like it's from a different it's like some shitty thing if you if they hold the pen and the pen is a shitty experience i really believe that that's going to influence i mean it's so direct it's right there it's like they use the pen to tip you so so there you go. I really believe that the pen matters. And the thing is that I had this pen collection that I took from Blue Star. Lots of pens, man. I took them to the sushi place. I ended up, I got so many of those pens from the sushi place. And then I worked in Queen Anne at a fish place, seafood, grill, barbecue. And I came in with all those pens. And then it's like a little bit like I have these pens that say sushi on them. name of a different restaurant and I can't really give that to people at the fucking Queen Anne seafood barbecue place so I I do the Elliot trick I put I put tape on all of them you know over the name you know and I felt kind of dirty doing it because I was like if they take that tape off and see that there's the name of a different restaurant then you know I'm kind of embarrassed but you know these are nice pens you know um what was I saying yeah, so I have this pen collection. and I mean, you have to understand, I bring it in in a pencil case, which is, it looks like a piece of luggage, but it's small. It's like five inches wide. 
it's like the length of a pen, but it's like one of those big check-in airport luggages, like a wheelie luggage, hard shell luggage. That's what it looks like, but it's small. It's like a funny little novelty item from China. Um, and I fill that thing up with pens and that thing fits about 30 pens at least. And the thing is my pen collection, way more than 30 pens. I always had like most of my pen collection at home, even when I filled up my luggage thing with pens and I bring that into work. And sometimes I see people with my pen with tape on it and my tape on it. And I'm, I'm cool with it, you know, cause, cause I like to be a friend of the people and I like to contribute. And I wouldn't even tell people that they're stealing my pens, you know, cause I mean, I want to, but just, I mean, it's hard to work it into conversation without it being all passive aggressive, you know? So most of the time I wouldn't even tell the servers that they're fucking stealing my pens. And then here's the, here's the point of my story. I fucking end up at Babar and I bring in my 30 pens, keep them in my pencil case. You know, day two, my pens are gone. All of them. People have gone into my pencil case, taken all of my pens. And I see every single server with my pens, with my tape in their pockets, on their tables. Like, and it's like such a, it's such an insult looking out over a big dining room with like 30 tables and I can see checks on like 10 tables and I can see my tape glowing on each check. It's like just this lighthouse shining of, it's just an insult, man. It's a fucking insult. And then I go home, I'm like, whatever. I go home, I refill my pencil case, 30 more pens, bring them in, all my pens are gone. You know, within a couple of days, I start to realize that Babar is existing with a pen deficit. I'm starting to exist that, I'm starting to understand that we have like 70 tables in that bitch. We got like 10 servers on the floor and we got like three pens, <laughs> you know? We got a situation where it's like, no one gets it. No one gets it. And all these servers being like, oh, yeah, I should really, I'm going to, you know what, tomorrow I'm really going to bring in some pens. That's the shit that Max would say. He's like, oh, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to bring so many pens. He has never bought any pens. And then he like uh, will laugh at me and be like, oh, yeah, I'm using your pens. Ha ha. Oh, my God, that makes me so angry. So Babar exists with this like extreme pen deficit like we're in the red you know the ink is in the red and then I show up and my because it's this dry sponge when I pour my 100 pens on that there are no pens left for me like I don't even have any pens like I'm down to like four pens over here you know and I dude I started with so many pens three weeks in all my pens were gone and then the thing is Marcos may his you know I love that man. Marcos was the general manager when I started at Babar. He hired me, you know. I don't think he's the general manager anymore. Corona happened. Everything changed. Dude, I love that man. But the only... No, he made me mad twice. <laughs> Should I... Okay. So first time he made me mad was when we're, re we're in the slow period they keep raising the minimum wage. We really need to lean up the operation. It's He's under a lot of pressure to get the operation to get the whole restaurant to run really lean and fix up labor and lean up labor. And he's on everyone that they have to work. They, they have to, they can't just be standing around on the clock. Now me, honestly, I'm so anxious all the time that I like that. You know, at the sushi place, one of my managers, Sean, he would always say that, I would always walk off in the middle of conversations. Like whenever he was trying to get to know me, 
I would just walk off. And he would always be like, I never get to hear about you. You're always walking off. I always like, you always say something weird about yourself and then you just walk off and I never get to hear the second half. And it's like, bro, I'm anxious. I'm not trying to tell you about myself. We don't really vibe. And I'm here and I always feel like if I'm just shooting the shit, someone might come and shit on me and be like, dude, you're on the clock. Why are you just shooting the shit? And when Marcus would lay in that, when he was laying down the law that we have to work, I was perfectly fine with that. And then he would go around to everyone and he would be like, you got to work hard. You got to work hard. And then he would get to me and he wouldn't understand that there was a difference. He wouldn't understand that um, they are 21 year olds. I mean, look, they're not all shitty, but they take it pretty easy. They're great at their jobs and I love them and everything. But like, they don't have that Swedish work ethic that I have where you're constantly working. So he would come up to me when I'm on the computer, fucking ringing in food, doing my job, getting all the modifications right, making sure everyone gets exactly what they want, modified exactly how they want it, you know? Fucking Karen wants her noodle cooked like slightly, slightly more, and then Jonathan wants his noodle cooked slightly, slightly less, and, you know, a little bit less butter in this garlic crab noodle over here, you know? Whatever. I'm trying to get everyone to have a perfect experience, and I'm fucking focused on the computer, and he comes up to me at the computer, and he's like, dude, like, you're on the clock. Like, you gotta be working. I'm like, bro, what? And then he like froze and I could tell that he was like, oh, and I could tell that he had just been going on autopilot, that he'd just been telling everyone the same thing. And I snapped at him and I was like, dude, you got to, you got to lay off. Cause like this shit is, this is not like, you're, this is not good management anymore. Like I get it. You're the manager. You got to hound everyone and you should hound everyone. But right now, look, you need to look at me and you need to do it better. Anyway, whatever. So I'm snapping at him a little bit and like lecturing him a little bit. (laughs) And then... Him and me are very cool. So then later on, it was just stiff between us because I'd snapped at him and we hadn't really addressed it. And then later on, I was standing in the office and I was like turned towards the closet and I was like doing something in the pockets of my coat pocket or something. And then he walks up to me from behind and he puts both hands on my shoulders. (laughs) I'll never forget this. It was so funny. He puts both hands on my shoulders and he just whispers, I love you, man. I'm sorry. He goes, I love you. That's so great. <laughs> and then I go, I love you too, but you're fucking driving me crazy, Marcos. You fucking push my buttons. And I just like, and he just like goes, yeah, I know. I know I'm driving you crazy. And then after that, we were cool. And he never hounded me again. That was the first time he made me mad. And then we were cool for months. And then three months later, he brings up the pens. And we're standing at the service station. And there are two pens or something. And we're in the middle of a busy dinner service. And he goes, dude, one of these days, I'm going to have to ask you servers to bring some pens in for Christ's sake. He says something like that. And dude, I just stop him right there. And I'm like, dude, dude. (laughs) And I just immediately tell him that, dude, do not, do not say that. And I immediately, I'm like, dude, this is very sensitive for me. When I started here, I brought in 100 pens. You see this pencil case here? This little thing that looks like a little luggage thing, but it's only five inches long. You you see this thing? This thing times three. Full of pens times three is how many I brought in. And then two weeks in, I had no pens left. You understand that I am being... And everyone makes fun of me for bringing in pens. And they don't bring in pens and we don't have any pens. And I have to supply everyone with fucking pens. And it's bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> and immediately he was like, oh my God, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> so funny. Um, 
Because it's like, I buy pens and markers. Markers from when I was an expo at this restaurant in Fremont. I would buy all these markers and I would put my tape on them and I would bring them in because sometimes you want a marker, you know, you want a Sharpie. And then two weeks after I start working there, my pens are everywhere and my, my marker, someone has taken my marker with my tape and just been like, ooh, a, a marker with p tape on it. Okay, I'm realizing now that I never told anyone. Like I... Because it's so passive-aggressive to be like, the pens and markers with this color tape are mine. Like, it's so passive-aggressive to say that. So I never told anyone. So it's this super passive-aggressive thing where I just see my pens everywhere. And, um, yeah. Because two weeks in, I see my marker with my tape. And someone has taken my tape and written on the tape leave at expo station, like made that pen the expo pen. As if this is just any pen, like I, you can't fucking write your name on my pen. But I understand that that's what happens because I never told anyone, you know, that's, that's the hole in my plan, you know. Um, but then that brings us to the point of the story, which is the, um, the next level complaint. It's one thing to take my pens because I don't tell you that green tape is my tape. It's one thing to write your name on it. But it's a different thing to have this restaurant that never has enough pens. And then I start working at the restaurant and then suddenly there's pens everywhere. And then you have show this man who needs a gratitude list more than anyone in the universe. In the part of my interview with show that I edited out, one of the many complaints he lodged against me was, he goes, when Joachim is here, there's always pens everywhere. And his implication is that that's very messy because he's like, oh, I don't put the pens in the right, like, you know, we have certain compartments where you, like stick the pens. I, I like will have just a pen chilling on the table or something. And then that comes on the heels of, I mean, I just feel like he could turn that around and be like, when Joachim is here, there's pens everywhere. And that could be a statement on a gratitude list. But instead, it's, it's not. And um, all I'm saying is that that's after he said that and after I listened to that when I was editing the episode, I literally thought of that about once an hour for four days. And every time I thought of it, it made me super angry. And... Uh, that's more of a me problem than a show problem, but yeah. I'm just telling you what it is, you know? Just telling you what it is. But uh, yeah, let's drink some water. I think today we're doing ginger. Hold on, let me go get the water. We got three waters today. I'm uh, First of all, I have to acknowledge that there's a little bit of a drift here. There's a little bit of creep. We're creeping away from the original mission. And here we have three beverages, and I am not sure that all three of these are going to be watery. I think I might start with this one. It's called Ginger Glow Lemon Plant-Infused Sparkling Water Beverage. So it's got sparkling water in there, but it also says beverage at the end. Ooh, very sharp, very natural, very strong ginger nose. Very nice. Oh my god, that's amazing. Oh. That is very good. That is really real ginger. That is, when they say 3% juice, I mean, I'm sure some of that is lemon juice. I'm sure it's not 3% ginger juice. But I'd be surprised if, yeah, this contains organic ginger juice. 
just like straight up. Ginger glow lemon. This is very good. One more sip there. Oh, big recommend. Um, I would say that I would like it more if they just didn't throw the stevia in there. You know, organic stevia extract. I don't know. I like it. I like, I love lemonade, but the way I make lemonade is I just don't add sugar. It's just like a fuck ton of lemon juice. You know, like my favorite beverage back in Sweden was sparkling water with a soda stream and squeezing about three lemons in there and just doing like what Sprite should taste like. No sugar, like just straight lemon juice and sparkling water. I mean, it's the best. It's so good. But, and this is really in that direction where it's strong lemon, really nice ginger, strong carbonation. This is like a 8.5 out of 10. They're only losing points on how it's not watery enough and how there's too much sweetness to it. Okay, number two, apple ginger, aha. Now, you have to excuse me if we've already done this one. I don't think we have, but yeah, I'm a little bit discombobulated, you know. It's a rough week. It's a rough week. Aha, these are no sweetener, no sodium, no calories, no juice. So these are ostensibly, hopefully, waterier. This is supposed to be well inside of our definition of sparkling water. The smell is metallic and very far removed from ginger. So it's apple ginger. Yeah, it smells like apple-flavored high chews. Smells like candy. Um, I mean, it's not bad. It's watery, which is, it's got this hint of apple. It's, the ginger disappears completely, honestly. That's apple flavored. And I mean, that's not bad. It says apple on there. It says this is a ginger episode. I mean, I shouldn't shit on them for making an apple flavored beverage that they write apple on, but but they didn't write an apple flavored beverage with a tiny hint of ginger. They they put them on equal footing. So the fact that it tastes not like ginger at all is a sort of failure. This is a six or something, because, yeah, five or six. Let's call it a five, because I'm not going to buy this again. Yeah, it's also like, it's got this sweetness to it. Actually, it's a four. I actually don't like it. It's no ginger. It's a candy-flavored apple. Ugh, no, I'm not into it. And I usually really like the ahas, so there you go. And then the third one here is, 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 this is the start of a new era. This is the first sparkling water that I'm trying on the pod that I didn't pay for. That they gave me because they listened to the pod and sent me some free samples. I don't know if they listened to the pod, but they sent me a free sample because the pod exists. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, the start of a new era, and I have to just try to say that I'm going to try to not treat it differently just because they were nice to me and gave me a gift i'm gonna try to give it the same harsh the same harsh licking that i give everything else so this is called clean cause sparkling yerba mate like i said we're drifting away from just sparkling water mate could be a whole different episode but i'll i have some more flavors of these so maybe we'll talk about it more at length in a different episode but i'll just say that Back in Germany, back in the day, when me and Carl were, when I visited Carl in Germany every time, Mate is this beverage. So in Germany, in the clubs, they drink this highly carbonated tea-infused beverage. 
um, with lots of caffeine in it, in it. The brand that's big in Germany is Club Mate. And it is delicious. It's like astringent. It's got this like round, interesting, delicious flavor. It's a sort of fermented tea flavor. It's not like a kombucha at all. It's You have yerba mate in America, but it's different, man. The yerba mate is sugary. It's too sweet. It doesn't have the same thing. The yerba mate is like also in the di- direction of a kombucha. I don't know. I really like club mate. And then this is a mate. It's sparkling. It's it's a company that supports addiction recovery. And there's 160 milligrams of better caffeine. I don't know what that means. Organic caffeine um, in each can. It's a tall boy. Um, this I have. They, they sent me three flavors. This is the orange ginger flavor. Let's try it. Good crack. Doesn't smell like anything. Yeah. And then there you go. That tastes more like German Club Mate than anything else I've had that's not Club Mate. This is closer than anything else I've ever had. Ooh, do I have to tell you that that's a good thing? Because that's a very good thing. This is very, very good. Orange ginger. It's um, it's very. It's got this astringent. Um, wow, that is. It's got that background mate flavor that like lingers a little bit where it's not sweet at all. What is in this thing? Zero calories, ingredients. Huh, it's interesting. There is stevia extract as the last ingredient. So there is sweetener in there, but it really isn't sweet. So that has to be the tiniest amount. It's like, it's got that slight delicious bitterness that really goes with the caffeine. Dude, I can only recommend this. This is like... I mean, the only thing I feel bad about here is that this falls slightly outside of my definition. But honestly, it's like a Club Mate that without losing the bubbles, it's a little bit waterier. And that's not bad because it's, oh, and but it is orange ginger. Let me, because it really, honestly, this tastes just like a Yerba Mate. I mean, it tastes just like a Club Mate. I'm not really tasting any orange. I'm not tasting any ginger. Oh, the faintest, faintest... I almost wish they would just call this like, you know, mate flavored because it's like, bro. This is like a 9 out of 10. Clean Koss is what it's called. Sparkling Yerba Mate. Yeah, go on their website, buy it, man. Am I saying that because they give it to me for free? I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't know. I don't think we can honestly know how we are being influenced by our feelings on a question like that. I don't think I'm saying it because of that. Am I saying it because I like the design of the can? Because I really do. And because 50% of profits support addiction recovery? Am I saying it because of that? I don't know. It's not impossible, but I also think it tastes fucking delicious. Anyway, that's the episode. Stay safe out there, everyone. Thank you for listening to This Week in Sparkling Water. That was our review of Orange Ginger Sparkling Yerba Mate by Clean Koss, Ginger Glow by Sparkling Glow, and Apple Ginger by AHA. And that brings us to our closing segment, Sparkling Water.
sparkling mind. For today's session, I would like you to sit up a little bit more straight. Because there's something about sitting up straight that makes it easier for the mind to focus. Makes it easier for the mind to think clearly. And then I would like you to take a couple of deep breaths. And I would like you to focus on the breath. You know, when you do a lot of meditation and listen to a lot of meditation instructors, sometimes they talk about why you're supposed to focus on the breath. And I mean, the truth is that there's nothing special or meaningful about the breath in the context of meditation. It's just that you should teach yourself to focus on something. And what they say is, you know, the breath will always be there. The breath is something you always have with you. So it's a convenient thing to be teaching yourself how to focus on. But the truth is that the breath is not always going to be there. And maybe believing without even questioning it that the breath is always going to be there. Maybe that's the final form of white privilege, you know what I'm saying? So what do we focus on when the breath is not even there? You know, they say you can teach yourself how to meditate by focusing on whatever. Even if you're just taking a seat next to a noisy construction site, you can meditate on that. You can just listen to the noise from the construction site and you can just be there. We can meditate on whatever. So maybe when the breath isn't there, you can just meditate on, I don't know, the feeling of the policeman's knee crushing into the bones of your neck 